Hello, I'm Louise Makshari and welcome to Real Talk with Real Mums, an expert-advised and mum-approved podcast that looks at the issues of everyday pregnancy with healthcare professionals and the real women who have gone through the pregnancy journey. Get in touch and follow us on Twitter at Real Mums Podcast and listen on iTunes, Spotify and online at realtalkwithrealmums.ie. On this episode, we'll explore what makes a pregnancy high risk. We'll speak to Dr. Jennifer Donnelly from the Rotunda Hospital. But before that, this episode's real mum is Maria Boyle, who many of you may know as Twisted Doodles on Instagram. Maria has recently published a wonderful book called The Newborn Identity, which is all about her life as a new parent to her gorgeous twins. Maria, you weren't always 100% sure if you could get pregnant following your cancer treatment. So did it come as a surprise when you did? Uh... I think it always comes as a surprise when you get pregnant. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it, it was so like the month, like one of the things I've had in the book was like the month before I had like a pregnancy scare. I don't know if it's a scare when you're trying to get pregnant, yeah. but uh, I remember like two in the morning, I, um, I kind of was like, oh my God, I haven't had my period. And I woke my husband up and was like, can we go to 24 hour Tesco, get a pregnancy test? And I was like, no. Uh, no Maria it's the middle of the night (laughs) but like the next day I I bought one two for fiver in uh, Tesco like the cheapest one there was Mm -hmm. and I I wasn't and I realized kind of then that like this of getting pregnant you suddenly realize all the things you can't do like go out drinking and stuff like that but then I realized that I was a bit sad that I wasn't so the following month uh, I would like found out I was pregnant uh, after like it was a few days after and I took another pregnancy test and it was negative and then a few days later two days later I went I'm still going my period I fished it out of the bin (laughs) in the bathroom and there was a faint line wow so that's how I found I was pregnant and then I bought like the digital ones and like had to go on two of them it's it's never like like it is winning a scratch (laughs) (laughs) it's never like you know you're sitting with your husband on the bathroom floor like waiting to look at no it's fishing it out of the bin it was me looking for a faint line yeah (laughs) That's how I found out I was pregnant with this baby. I, I'm right there with you. Um, but when did you find out that it was not one, but two babies? Uh, so um, I found out I was pregnant, I think maybe two weeks later, I had a bleed and I was in pain. Um, I actually had a bleed before I did a stand-up comedy gig. Um, I went on stage, actually did great that night. It was fantastic. And then I went home and phoned like a nurse line and she said, go in to the emergency department. Um, just to get this checked out and my husband was away on a stag so I went into the emergency department on my own at midnight mm. on a Friday um, and they did an external scan they couldn't find anything so they did like they thought it was a it could be an ectopic pregnancy so right. one of the tests they do for that is they check your level of HCG and how it doubles over 48 hours so I went back on a Monday to get the second part of that test and then they phoned me at two o'clock and said can you come in for a scan and I was in work and nobody knew I was pregnant and I said I can't come in now can I come in at four yeah because it's still so early yeah so I came in here at the emergency department into the they, rotunda yeah they took me uh and after a bit of persuading because I was like I need to come in for a scan I don't know what's happening and um they did an internal scan because it's fun because they can also put it inside you mm. uh, which was a very like it was, it was an interesting experience. I, I make it sound like like it was a big deal. It was, and I was mostly worried about what was happening. So when they did the internal scan, they said your hormone levels are really high. Um, we'd expect to see something, and I said, "Is it twins?" And they said, "Yeah, there's one. There's the other." Because prior to this, my mother has said to both me 
and my brother that one of us was going to have a set of twins. Right. And it was me. And was that because there were twins in your family? No, it's because my mum keeps like <laughs> trying to psychically predict stuff. So the difference between, so my girl. So she was going to be right eventually. <laughs> oh yeah, like you'll win the lotto. No, she, she predicted I'd break my leg playing tag rugby. So it's like never really fantastic stuff. It's always slightly annoying things. Mm-hmm. Um, like not like being pregnant with twins is annoying, but so the twins I have are identical. So identical twins are the least common form of twins. The difference between identical and non-identical twins is that with non-identical twins, there's a release of two eggs mm. and then they're separated by two separate sperms. So they're essentially like siblings in the family. That's yeah. as big of the difference. And with identical twins, um, you get a splitting of the egg yeah. that's been fertilized. So it has basically all the cards are in the deck and then they're basically doubled. So that's... Yeah. So uh, both cancer and uh, twins are spontaneous uh, uh, cell division events. So so you've had them both. Yeah. The only cancer they have is their star sign. So, <laughs> um, so what did you think when she said that to you when she said it was twins? Uh, my mother was right. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had joked about it. And then I got... Uh, I, I kept like looking at the scan where they basically look like peanuts uh, exploring a very dark cave. Uh, that was my womb thought like there. Um, so uh, I thought that they might be identical. And then we found out uh, at 12 weeks. So they, I got scanned again and they confirmed um, that I was identical. So I got to tell my husband that I was right uh, about it. So when you're uh you you get not diagnosed but i suppose diagnosed with having identical twins um so identical twins uh can often share placenta Mm. so one of the difficulties with that is that they have to learn how to share properly at an early age um what can happen is when they're sharing a placenta one of them can pump too much into the other so there's an uneven um it's called twin to twin transfusion where too much goes in one direction mm. so from 16 weeks i think to 24 i had to keep getting scanned um every two weeks to make sure that wasn't happening right um so that you, there, there was kind of like a worry in the back of my head that that could happen and we had like one scare where somebody said this could be happening and then i saw a consultant who went uh that guy doesn't know what he's talking about this is fine <laughs> So like that was it. And you, so that bleed that you'd had earlier, mm. where which led to you first finding out that it was it was twins. Yeah, that wasn't kind of anything to worry about. It wasn't. So I also had another bleed eleven weeks. Okay. So uh, apparently, sometimes it's a thing that can happen. Yeah. With twins. Uh, that because I asked, is this normal? And they mm. went, uh, it happens. So yeah, I think like because it was my my first pregnancy and only. Uh, I, everything that kind of happened scared me a little bit. Well, I think, I think all pregnant women are scared of bleeds. I think everybody has it in their head that that automatically means that you're miscarrying and it's not always, you know, the pregnancy is not always being lost. And I think that's important actually to flag that, you know, it's good to obviously go and get it checked out, Mm. but you know, it often doesn't mean anything kind of super serious. Oh, absolutely. I think like before you start jumping to conclusions is definitely go and get it, you know, checked out. If you have any worries, go and get it checked out. Like, you know, somebody will definitely reassure you and scan you and tell you it's okay. Yeah. Like uh, hopefully a medical professional is like some guy in a garage. <laughs> and did you find, did you find those scans uh, that you had to have so regularly reassuring? Yeah. Like it was kind of good because we got to see uh, loads of pictures of them. Um, uh, kind of 
growing up and messing around like so that was good we were scanned like every two weeks i think after 30 weeks also like i went to see i went to the twin clinic in the rotunda and i think like one of the things about having twins is that when you say it to people they're like oh my god you're having twins like what are you going to do and it's kind of you become almost like this mythical unicorn creature roaming <laughs> through pregnancy. Uh, but when you go to like a twin clinic, you are not special anymore. Like everyone is there having twins. Um, so like it was quite a, kind of good in that way. It's very yeah. grounding. And, you know, how did you find, how have you found having twins? I mean, I feel like every pregnant woman looks at, or every mother of one looks at any mother of twins and just is like, oh my God, you are amazing. Because, it, you know, it's just, the struggle is real with one and having two is just, you know, it seems like unimaginable. Uh, it, I suppose like it was my first um, experience of like having a baby. So it was two babies. I kind of say like in the book, it's like starting a computer game you've never played before and just selecting expert. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I, I found good about it was so like it is actually being in touch with um other multiple parents so yeah. there is an irish multiple birth association group our organization they have like a facebook uh page that like a facebook group that you can be part of and they have like a newsletter and stuff but i found being in contact with other multiple parents reassuring in terms of whatever's happening to you during your pregnancy somebody else is going to have experienced that yeah. you know and it's just that concentration of basically a, a huge amount of knowledge um another thing was uh my husband did like he did as he not as much as i did he didn't carry the babies and give birth <laughs> to them but like he helped with feeding it it was very much a team effort he became my you know co-parent uh in in just basically rearing the children you know mm. but um i think one of the things that people need to be I think reassured about is that it's okay to say that being a parent is hard nobody's yeah. going to take away your kids if you're finding it a bit difficult it doesn't have it to be all amazing it is amazing but it doesn't have to be a constant yeah. so it is okay to find things tough I just anybody who who says that it's all amazing I just think they're lying I mean I just do and well I think that maybe there's like one percent of people who are having an amazing time all the time and I'm happy for those people I haven't <laughs> where are them. they yeah I don't how do know. I avoid them <laughs> yeah no well <laughs> but I think that most of us the vast 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 majority of us would say it's really hard and sometimes you feel like you're doing a terrible job yeah but all you can do is your best yeah like you know you know we're kind of saying that it is, it is hard but it is hands down uh an experience that i couldn't imagine my life existing without right now mm -hmm. because you know it's it's actually amazing to watch babies grow also biologically your brain pumps you full of hormones that tells you it's amazing so that's yeah. kind of good <laughs> as well it's like uh I, I said like it's almost like being on a drug you know all yeah. your friends are like you're telling your friends you should have a baby but all they can see is you look really tired and you've no money left <laughs> um in in your book you've written about having postnatal depression mm. um I I think you've written about it really well very kind of honestly and openly and in my opinion the more honest and open we are about these things the better yeah um can you tell me a little bit about that experience so uh multiple pregnancies are I think twice as likely to develop or people who have multiple births and are twice as likely to develop postnatal depression, depression than singleton. But it doesn't mean that 
you know, singleton pregnancies don't. It's something I think that needs to be talked about more. Um, so I wrote about it in the book mostly to kind of help me figure it out for myself because I wrote about it in diary form. Um, so I had it, I think, somewhat about five weeks, seven weeks actually. And then it kind of got a lot worse at like five months. And I recognized what was happening. And I went and talked to a counselor and I went and talked to my GP who put me on uh, antidepressants, which was something I didn't want to go mm. on. Um, and I thought that antidepressants would make me feel like really high or something weird or change like how I felt. And my husband said, no, that's cocaine. Uh, <laughs> um, so the doctor's they, not going to give that to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to get a better doctor. You know? <laughs> but uh, what, what they did for me was help me get back to a level where I could start um, feeling more myself. So like the whole way through it, I didn't stop caring for my kids. I wasn't looking sad all the time I was laughing I was so like depression doesn't didn't present itself as I thought it would yeah it was just at the end of the day when I stopped uh when I was with the girls and they'd gone to bed I didn't know how to function for myself yeah um it wasn't it wasn't a great time I'm reassured by knowing that what happened to me is quite normal and also that I've come through it mm. and here we are my my girls are now three and a half mm. and do you still take medication no um so I I was taken or I weaned off the medication at about six months yeah so yeah it's I think it's important to to say that because I think your fear of medication is very common and I think a lot of people would feel like, oh, I don't want to go on medication because what if I never come off or what if it makes me disconnected from my feelings or what if I don't feel like myself? All of those things that you said. Mm. Um, but, you know, it really can be a very important and effective way of getting yourself back to a place where you can take care of yourself. Um, and it's great to hear that, you know, you you had it when you needed it and then you were able to kind of come off it and go back to your life. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it helps a lot if you have basically support supportive. Like my GP is amazing, and my counselor was amazing. So it's good if you have people in your life who understand that difficult times are difficult and don't tell you, "Well, buck up." Or this whole thing of, I hate when people say things will get easier because that doesn't help me get through this day yeah. or this week. Because when I was depressed, all I could see was my life being a constant of what it was, which was caring for yeah. two small uh, children. Yeah. So people say, I couldn't see that it would get better. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily help. I know yeah. it's a good thing to say, but like... No, I think you're right. And I think I think when you're in that, you know, whether you're experiencing the depression or not, when you're in that early motherhood shock where your life has been totally changed... Mm overnight it can be very hard to connect with the fact that this isn't this current newborn life is not the way it's going to be forever yeah um it's really overwhelming it, you know for anyone and if you're experiencing some depression as well I can't even imagine um what that might feel like yeah how do you feel about your pregnancy experience overall um it was it was I was gonna say like it was interesting it's funny like 
it's I find pregnancy incredibly boring <laughs> because it seems to go on forever. Yeah. And it's also one of these things that like at least, you know, when you have a baby, you can kind of be like, hey, do you want to hold this baby? But I couldn't like actively invite people to like hold my stomach, even though it was probably <laughs> the only time in my life I've ever had a rock hard stomach. <laughs> but you do, I think a lot of the time feel like you're going through it alone because you are. You like are, you are. Yeah. You're you're kind of, you know, in it um alone uh I I look back and I and I, I kind of got so I I found it physically hard towards the end uh I ended up wearing like a brace and I ended up seeing like a physio because about 34 weeks like I found it incredibly difficult to walk mm. which is one of those things but I'm also I think like I'm incredibly grateful so I was induced at 37 plus one uh, one of the things I didn't think that I'd be able to do was push them out myself. Yeah. In my mind, it was like, I'm having a section. Yeah. And when I said it to my consultant, he was like, no, no, you could probably push them out now. I need to think about this. Uh, and I went back, I told my mother-in-law and she said, sure, by the time you're ready to go, you wouldn't care if they took them out of your ear. Um, <laughs> so I did. And it wasn't, and that decision wasn't me being like, oh, I want to have like a really natural birth and like light a few candles. Mm. It was what was right for me at the time and I think one of the worries that I had I think a lot of women who are pregnant with multiple births is is getting getting too far enough with them Mm. so like I remember it being 28 weeks and going okay it's 28 weeks and then 32 weeks and then your head you're counting off these milestones that you're like if I go now it'll be okay we worry about like I worried about that so much because other people tell you if you ask for their stories. I, I think multiple births are one of these things that people have so many. There's such a diverse array of stories. Like I was 37 plus one. Friends of mine were in the NICU mm. um, with either one or both of, of their children. And I will say that even though the people I know were in the NICU, they received great care. Yeah. And their children are absolutely thriving now. Yeah. So whatever... If you are pregnant with a multiple birth, whatever the outcome is, the care is there. The technology is there. It'll be okay. And I know maybe you don't know me from Adam, but sometimes people need to hear that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I think you're right. And and it, and every birth, we say this all the time, every birth is different and every baby's different and every mother's different. And, you know, you just have to, I mean, I think all you can do is probably trust the medical advice and go with your gut, really. Yeah. Like, what, like, one, of the things, like one of the things I said in the book is that, I said, like, all birth is natural birth. You're just basically, you're getting a baby out of your body. Like, that's it. Because I think so many people have so much guilt yeah. about how their baby is born. It's like the leave insert. Yeah. Like two years down the line, it's weird that you're talking about the leave yeah. insert. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. We loved your book and we wish you every success with it. We're also delighted to have the chance to discuss the importance of mental health during and after pregnancy and we would absolutely encourage anybody who's struggling to reach out for support there is no shame whatsoever in it now i am delighted to speak with dr jennifer donnelly from the rotunda hospital so jennifer we spoke to maria our real mum, about her pregnancy with twins and obviously having twins puts you into that high risk category so let's first talk about the idea of a high risk pregnancy what does that term actually mean 
So um, it can mean a number of different things. So there are many women going into pregnancy who don't appear to have any additional risks that will have a problem identified during the pregnancy or during labor that would increase the risk for them in future pregnancies. For example, if somebody develops preeclampsia, it's very difficult to predict that if you don't have a pre-existing condition such as high blood pressure um, or if you have a postpartum hemorrhage, it's hard sometimes in advance to predict who are women at higher risk of developing that. Um, and then there are women who have pre-existing medical conditions who are going into pregnancy that are going to have that and that that's going to have an impact on their pregnancy outcome. And if they follow a management plan, then their risk can be modified, but they will be at higher risk compared to a woman who doesn't have that particular condition. So it's kind of a blanket term. Yes, exactly. So it isn't very specific to one particular condition or one particular aspect, and it can be a risk relating to for example, development of the baby in the womb. So if the baby is it has a, it identifies having a problem during pregnancy, either of its growth or its structure, then that can become a high-risk pregnancy. Or if there's a problem from, as I mentioned, preeclampsia or a, a labor problem that can subsequently make somebody higher risk. So if you do have what is termed a high-risk pregnancy, what mm-hmm. does that mean for your pregnancy? What does that change? So I suppose I... Um, one of my roles is to look after women who've had pre-existing condition, medical conditions who come into pregnancy. So in the Rotunda, there's a number of clinics available for women, particularly focused around um, conditions such as diabetes in pregnancy or renal problems during pregnancy, cardiac problems during pregnancy um, or infectious diseases during pregnancy. So that those so women who have these conditions can be appropriately counselled, get the right information and get the best possible pregnancy outcome for them. Uh, and obviously some women may have more than one condition and to try and coordinate their care to make sure that their care plans aren't conflicting. And generally, do women mm-hmm. like that need a different kind of care or um, especially tailor-made care or would their general care during pregnancy be similar, just maybe with closer attention paid to certain things? So for example, if somebody has pre-existing high blood pressure, we know that they may be more at risk of developing preeclampsia, which is a condition where you can get worsening high blood pressure, but it can also affect the baby's growth. It can affect the mother's kidneys or liver even if they don't have a previous problem with that. So there are some things that can help modify that risk. Some women who've had high blood pressure would be recommended to start aspirin during the first trimester of pregnancy, that that can slightly reduce the risk. And then treatment of hypertension in pregnancy is very important to make sure that they're on the right medications and that those medications are increased appropriately. Many women are concerned about taking medications in pregnancy. um, And so they may stop their medications because they're worried about the effects that they may have. But in fact, certain many medications are safe to take in pregnancy. And in fact, what can cause a problem is if the medication, if the condition isn't treated properly and that can cause more problems so it's just to try and inform women of what's the best thing for them to do for their specific condition so in high blood if they've got pre-existing high blood pressure that they would maybe talk to their GP who might be managing their blood pressure and change to a medication that is suitable for pregnancy so that they can be on that while they're trying to get pregnant and if they are on say for example an anticoagulation something to help with blood thinning if they've had a previous problem with that to link in with their hematologist to make a plan so that they can be on the right kind of medication for them during their pregnancy. It sounds like it could be a stressful experience if you're going into something with a pre-existing condition um you know if you're going into pregnancy with that it might add to your your 
loads of worry. Those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, women are more and more informed about their condition and what things ca- they can do, what they can't do. And we have a service to, um, depending on the particular kind of condition where women with complex medical problems can come and talk about what how to best get themselves into the best health for uh, for pregnancy. So mm-hmm. that, for example, that they see their particular specialists who might modify their medication appropriately. We have a a multidisciplinary meeting once every month or every six weeks where we, a number of different specialists will get together and make a plan um, specific to a, uh, a woman's condition because sometimes if they have multiple problems that it may not be the same as somebody with a single problem and sure. so then I would tend to meet with them first of all to see what's important for them get all their background information and then get more information from their specialists and try and make an individual care plan for them. So if you are someone who knows going into pregnancy that it might be a little bit more complex for you because yeah. you have a pre-existing condition, who is your best first port of call? Is it your GP? Is it if you're seeing a specialist for that condition? You know, if you want to say, okay, I want to get pregnant, what is the best thing for me to do? Yeah, so it's very much dependent on what the underlying condition is. Um, and a GP is always a good first port of call because they're a very good coordinator of care mm. and that's what they're used to doing. And so although they may not have all of the exact answers, they'll certainly be able to um, direct women in the right direction as I mentioned we have a preconceptual service here for certain conditions and for example it, women with diabetes there's a very good preconceptual counseling um, clinic in the Mater hospital that sees women and optimizes their treatment prior to pregnancy that's similar for rheumatology services things like lupus or um, rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. so it really depends on the condition and then there's also uh, there's been new funding for expansion of care for women with epilepsy in pregnancy and pre-pregnancy um, um, and adv- there are some uh, new appointments of advanced nurse practitioners who have speci- specialization in organizing the care for women who want to get pregnant with epilepsy that they can access. So it does very much depend on what the condition is. Mm-hmm. And a GP is always the first port of call. But if they have a specific condition, they could get in touch with any of the, the clinics specific to that in the rotunda. And then we can help direct them also. What about people who don't necessarily have lifelong conditions, but who have had incidences of unusual medical circumstances in the past Mm. or not so unusual say Mm. someone has had a transplant or maybe an experience with cancer Mm. it's not something that they're dealing with every day yeah and when do they need to make the medical team aware of the fact that these things have happened how important is it that they share this info yeah well I think overall it's for for me it's easy to say I'm an obstetrician I see women who want to get pregnant and who are pregnant all of the time and I think it's about raising awareness so in the past many people for example who'd had a transplant or who had cancer would have been told maybe don't don't get pregnant that's absolutely changed and changing all the time and part of care for women with transplant or with previous um previous cancer is they'll continue to engage with their primary care team and that they will give them advice that is specific to them and then if they wanted to get more specialized information particularly pertaining to pregnancy that they can refer them on to us yeah mm-hmm. I just my my I had cancer mm-hmm. before and mm-hmm. my team just saw me a little bit more often yeah exactly that was all it was too just yeah and I yeah and um, and so we since 2017 we have a specific medical clinic here for women who have had diagnoses that maybe don't fit into one particular box but then you know are more complex or have had history of cancer in the past mm-hmm. and if they want to attend then we can see them more frequently as well so they're now, getting a consistent message. Yeah. Yeah. So what if you are a woman whose pregnancy becomes high risk? Yeah. I can imagine that that would be a scary thing to hear yeah. or a scary label to have applied to your pregnancy yeah. if you're not coming from a background where you've dealt with complex yeah. medical conditions before. Yeah. So I think that's quite a, a common um, a 
whenever women say for example are diagnosed with preeclampsia which is the most common complication of pregnancy that can come out of the blue and oftentimes they'll feel well and they'll say I can't believe it I can't believe I've, I've developed this I feel absolutely fine and they're being um, admitted they're being started on medication to control their blood pressure and perhaps they've got some changes in their kidney function their liver function and it can be a big fright uh, for them because they're not expecting it and because it can be difficult to predict who's going to develop it that level of uncertainty can be difficult to deal with once somebody has been diagnosed with preeclampsia then we can make a plan for treatment and if depending on when it occurs the risk in a subsequent pregnancy is increased and if somebody's had severe preeclampsia or that has started at an early stage of the pregnancy then they would definitely as I mentioned be recommended to start an aspirin in, a ne- in the next pregnancy and they would be seen more frequently um, throughout that pregnancy to monitor the baby's growth um, to ensure that if it is detect- if it does occur and it can occur in about 25 to 50% of cases depending on circumstances which means in fact that in 75% of cases it won't recur but whenever it has happened when it's happened unexpectedly women are naturally more concerned about it happening again. Well I mean I think it's hard because pregnancy can be an anxiety building thing in general because yeah. you know you, you you feel such a massive responsibility for the baby that you're carrying yeah. and you want to do everything right and anytime yeah. that anything goes even slightly wrong I think it yeah. can it can really reduce you to total panic yeah and I think that's really important that also that women don't blame themselves for things going wrong because often you see that well what if I had you know if I hadn't have you know eaten that particular thing or you know I smoked in the past what should I be where if they're all if it was as straightforward as identifying one particular concern that caused it it would make our jobs a lot easier we could say well don't do that and then you won't develop it but unfortunately it's not as simple as that it's very difficult to predict who is going to develop these and so it's you know and so it's very important that women don't feel that they've themselves to blame and that if you're a healthy woman you know good weight non-smoker you're doing the best that you can to have a healthy baby and sometimes there are problems that are going to come about that just aren't predictable and then we it's important for us as healthcare professionals trying to identify them when they do arise and act appropriately and quickly when we need to. And I suppose there's no use really in blaming yourself. You're not no. going to... You're, you're not, not going to... No, exactly. But it's hard not to, as you said, you know, because yeah. you feel such responsibility whenever you're having a baby. Yeah. And then when something goes wrong, there is sometimes a tendency to blame yourself. But really, you know, in this, if it was as straightforward as identifying one particular thing that you did that caused a problem, then... We wouldn't have these problems. problems. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It'd be a lot easier. Yeah. So, I mean, since I have you, I have a few general questions because as an obstetrician, I think everyone who's ever had a baby would like to ask an obstetrician a few questions. And one thing that I've been obsessed with since I had my first baby is why is it so important Mm -hmm. to go to the toilet soon after you give birth? Um, well, whenever, if you've had a vaginal birth or even if you've had a cesarean section, there's going to have been some pressure on your bladder because your bladder is right beside your womb. So if you've had a vaginal birth, often you might have some bruising around the bladder and the bladder is a muscle. And so if it gets bruised, then it doesn't function properly. So if you don't empty your bladder regularly, sometimes it can become over distended and that can cause problems kind of longer term. Just sometimes during the birth, the nerves supplying the bladder can get bruised as well. It's important not to over empty your bladder also and to be aware of your pelvic floor but sometimes for the first couple of days you can have altered sensation there so just to regularly empty your bladder the physiotherapists and the bladder care specialists wouldn't say too frequently it's important not to do it too frequently but every if you need to or every three to four hours if you don't because the sensation can be altered and that can help reduce the risk of further complications so you're trying to get the system going exactly okay. and if you've had an epidural um, because that can affect the function of the bladder then your bladder will usually be emptied before you 
um, leave the labour ward and then usually that should have worn off within four to six hours and that's what the midwives will be looking out for that and if you haven't passed water it might be a sign that you've you're in retention that you might need to have a catheter put back in okay that makes sense so yeah. it's a sign mm-hmm. that kind of things are going are working okay yeah. yeah okay great exactly. yeah then I have to ask you about the first period after yeah. you've had your baby because I think mm-hmm. a lot of women find that a little bit surprising. Yeah, so it really depends. If you're fully breastfeeding, sometimes you won't have a period until you've stopped breastfeeding. Um, that's called lactational amenorrhea is the scientific term for that. So like, um, amenorrhea means no periods. But some women who are fully breastfeeding will still ovulate. And once you've ovulated, then your next period is going to happen but so it can be very difficult to say if you're bottle feeding then usually it's about four to six weeks but again it depends on what were your what were your periods like before you got pregnant so if you're somebody who had kind of a longish cycle probably that's what's going to happen again after mm-hmm. you have a baby usually the first period is a little bit heavy and for the first two to three months after having a baby you can often ovulate at times that you're not expecting so it women can sometimes get pregnant much more quickly than they were planning on because they're not quite sure when they're fertile um, if they've previously had a regular period. So, you know, in terms of contraception, it's really important to think about that after you've had a baby to make sure that you don't have, or to try and minimize the likelihood of having an un, unplanned early surprise pregnancy if you don't want one. So in terms of pregnancy mm-hmm. and, uh, and contraception after yeah. pregnancy, what's, I mean, what's the way to go? So again, it depends on what you want, what you were using before, how important it is for you to avoid a pregnancy. Are there any, do you have any medical conditions that might, prevent you from having a certain type of contraception if you're breastfeeding for example you can't take the combined oral contraceptive pill and uh, you can only be on the progesterone only pill um, and some women will rely on breastfeeding alone for contraceptive but it's not reliable it wouldn't be recommended because it's okay. not secure as i mentioned you could can you could absolutely ovulate when you're um, breastfeeding and not know about it and become pregnant so it's not enough on itself to rely on for contraception okay. uh, if you're not breastfeeding then all forms of contraception are open to you that you would have been open to beforehand okay that's a good message to mm-hmm. get out i think because Absolutely. i've heard that a good few times that yeah. breastfeeding is nature's contraception but not always to a point <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then you know if you need contraception you're probably having sex um, mm-hmm. and going back to sex after pregnancy can be kind of a stressful thing Absolutely. what do women need to know about that whatever it's right for them and it's very different for every individual depending on how what kind of birth they had how they're how they've recovered have they haven't had any stitches have they had any complications have they had a cesarean section how they feel about it i mean there's so many factors that go into that i mean kind of in the past many people would think oh six weeks i should be in inverted commas back to normal that's yeah. absolutely not true i mean your life has changed so much so dramatically after the birth of every baby um and so really it's important that it's when you're ready to go back to having sex after having a baby and that might be it might be two months it might be six months it might be three weeks it really depends on the person um and so that's really individual what if someone is finding that they that that doesn't come back to them what if it goes for a very long time and they feel like maybe they've gone beyond something Mm -hmm. that is related maybe to the pregnancy or Mm -hmm. they feel kind of disconnected from that part of their Mm -hmm. existence would you have any recommendations for them 
Well, I suppose there's a number of factors that can play into that. And postpartum depression is a big one that sometimes, you know, you can, that can have a significant effect on your libido as can breastfeeding, for example. Mm. That doesn't happen for everybody, but really? it absolutely does. It can, yeah. because it can have an effect on your the levels of estrogen in your circulation. So there's the, the, those would be the things to think about if, for example, you've kind of lost desire after childbearing and um, that it could be postpartum depression. Some of it could be hormonally related um, and it could just be the tiredness um, and the change of rhythm um, and change in life that occurs after having had a baby. So I think if that's something that's becoming a problem, then certainly talking to somebody. And again, the first port of call often is a, is a good GP um, to kind of talk through that and the mental health support team here. Or if it's happened in the past, to be preemptive about it during a pregnancy and then link in with the mental health support team during pregnancy. What's the best way to access the mental health support team if you feel like you need some help from them? So the, there's information available for them on the website or to, how to contact them on the Rotunda website. And if you're linked in to antenatal care, then you can access them. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jen Donnelly. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this expert advised and mum approved podcast. Chat to us on Twitter at Real Mums Podcast or visit online at realtalkwithrealmums.ie. I'm Louise McSharry and this has been Real Talk with Real Mums.